Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome, everybody, to the Pinelander Podcast. This is Paul LaFaber. I'm here with my Ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. Today is Friday, the 24th of June, 2022, and this is our 29th episode. Uh, we have a guest on this morning. I think it's his first time on. Yeah, if my, uh, I think I'm having a Biden moment. But I no, think that's this, right. This is first time. Well, and what we wanted to do, of course, is uh, some of you may remember uh unconventional warfare in the carolinas yes. part one and uh so we're, we're kind of backed by uh, popular demand yes. and we wanted to bring in a, a subject matter expert yeah so uh today's subject matter expert uh is retired uh, army sergeant major bert puckett ranger puckett welcome to the pinelander podcast hey thanks guys i appreciate it <laughs> yeah man uh, we know uh we've been wanting to do this for a while so welcome well, I appreciate it. I don't know how much, uh, how much, I don't have any, I'm not an authored, authored kind of guy. I'm, I'm just uh, well-read, well-read, and I've been studying or reading about this time period pretty much my whole life. Yeah. Well, you, you have a passion for the subject, which Absolutely. is, uh, you know, you can't help but pick up when, when you're sitting around talking to you about it. And it's, uh, I know uh, you, you get a pretty, you get a, a small group assembled around you pretty quick when we start talking about this stuff. So it's kind of, it's just fun. I mean, you know, growing up in, I grew up in South Carolina and I, I kind of grew up in, you know, with the, with the legends of Marion and Sumter and Pickens and Moultrie and uh, Sergeant Jasper and all that stuff. When, as I was growing up and these places were, they weren't something you just had to read about in a book. I and mean, there were places that was like, well, that happened right there. You know, you go to these places. Right and check down the road. Yeah. Just down the street, South Carolina is not that big of a place. Well, you know, uh, what's always interesting to me, Bert, is, uh, you know, as a kid, when you're going through school and you're learning about uh, the Revolutionary War, um, it seems like the whole thing was just taking place up north. It was just something up there. Um, <clears throat> culminated in Virginia is about as far as it got got down to the south. And that's just really not the case at all. No, not at all. I mean, it, it's it's always funny to me that it culminates in Virginia because – when you look at the American Revolution, there was not many, you know, large military actions in Virginia at all. Uh, Virginia was was doing a lot of things logistically. Um, and at the end of the war, of course, they did get smacked around a little bit uh, by Simcoe and Benedict Arnold uh, invaded Virginia, burned down Petersburg, burned down Richmond, things like that. Mm. And, of course, everything culminated <laughs> culminated uh in yorktown but the things that a lot of history books leave out is how how did it culminate at yorktown because you know it, it's it's really frustrating because there's it was uh oh man there was this great i was really looking forward to it it was back in the late 90s there was a uh, I think the history channel discovery channel was all brand new and mm. um they were doing a thing on the American Revolution, and I was excited. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be great. This will, this will be cool. It'll be modern. It'll be a, it'll be a cool modern spin to it." And every the it, it followed the natural progression from '76 and Battle Road and Lexington and Concord and uh, the Burgoyne campaign, and it followed all these northern battles and these northern campaigns. And then it gets to the Battle of Saratoga, which was, of course, a, a great American victory, arguably what brought the French off the fence mm. to come to our aid was the Battle of Saratoga. And it, once they culminated with the Battle of Saratoga, all of a sudden it was like, oh, by the way, there was Yorktown. And then, you know, the army surrendered to Yorktown. It's like this this entire miniseries TV show thing <laughs> skipped over almost two years of the war Wow, that was, that happened 
here in the South. It happened in, uh, well, from Georgia all the way up into North Carolina and uh, quite a bit in South Carolina and North Carolina more than Georgia, really. And it, I just found it, it was just profoundly frustrating. <laughs> I was like, dude. Well, is, it, know, is, it, is it because freaking, is, years of combat going is, on? Yeah, is it, is, it, is it because of the nature of the type of war that was taking place in the South? Or, or why do you think uh, we kind of just get ignored down here? Uh, well, I mean, I have a, I have a theory. <laughs> I do have a theory. And it has to do with an entirely different war. Um, my theory is uh, there was there was this little thing that we had to deal with called the American Civil War. Um, and if you think about it, at the end of the American Civil War, to the victors go the spoils. And when you're trying to uh, suppress, I guess, uh, certain certain ways of being. Rugged individualism. Um, you don't necessarily want those people to have heroes. Uh-huh. And a lot of the history books from that point on were written and published in Massachusetts. I mean, hey, just to... they're written and published in Massachusetts. So you yeah. not and and it's a hard, it's a difficult, it's a difficult conflict to wrap your head around. It's easy to talk about large pitch battles it's easy to talk about saratoga you know because hey bird just to sneak in there uh for those that you know that may not be clue, clued in uh you guys if you don't know uh you know south carolina seceded from the union first right and uh you know they fired the first shots on fort sumter uh obviously because you know what bird is going to tell us is uh you know a lot of these battles that ended up winning the Revolutionary War were fought in South Carolina. I think that's where you're going. Yeah, and, I mean, most yeah. Of the, the, the conditions, I mean, we, we talk about, especially in the, uh, in the unconventional warfare world uh, or any, any soft kind of operation, is you, you talk about condi- setting conditions, mm-hmm. um, trying, to, trying to develop and set conditions in order to create the third and the second and third and fourth order of effects mm. that are desirable in order to complete your strategic vision. Um, so in the South, that's what essentially happened. Um, it was, you know, I won't say there was a grand, you know, two or three year plan or strategic plan of, of what was going to happen. I mean, the South was rocked back on its heels. Um, mm. You got to understand, essentially, from the time the British decided that they were going to invade the South and they invaded this, they came from New York and invaded the South on the premise that Lord George, uh, the prime minister of England, was convinced that uh, the crown or the British forces would have much more support in the South than they would up in places like New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, and the New England states, stuff like that, where it was, everybody was pretty much a patriot, right? That, you know, or a, in the parlance of the time, politically, they would have been known as a Whig. They were a Whig party. Um, the, uh, there was more support. Now, I mean, uh, that, and that was, of course, that was the, the British belief, um, and, and actually, it was kind of well-founded, though, wasn't it? I mean, there was quite a bit of support yeah, to mean, remain. So been, you know, there was. Especially there in places been, like Charleston. Uh, there had been, been a lot of, there had been interesting little fights. There had been little things that had happened in the South at that point, And they'd been very crowned one-sided to a degree. Uh, mostly. Um and then it kind of fell off. I mean, in, in 1776, June 28th, uh, the British attempted to take Charleston. Mm-hmm. And when they attempted to take Charleston at that point, they did it like straight up the middle. It was like there was no, it was like we're going to sail the ships in the harbor. We're going to put the troops off and we're going to take Charleston. Yeah, it was ballsy. <laughs> and it didn't. It, 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 it really off, didn't work. Yeah, so it was. Yeah. It was often a, a false assumption. <laughs> yeah, it's a false assumption. Uh, yeah, they yeah. were like, "Wow, that that really sucked." Well, it, if yeah. you look at it from the British perspective, 
that that battle that lasted a day, and it was a it was a primarily land based sea battle, if that makes sense. It was a fixed fortification versus ships, and there was also an attempt uh, to uh, push across an inlet with infantry to take this fortification. The fortification was known as the then it was known as the fort at Sullivan's Island. Now it's known as Fort Moultrie. And the fort was unfinished. It was, it basically, it was a, it was a three-sided fort. The whole back of the fort wasn't finished yet. They hadn't finished building it. So the Brits knew if they could get troops in behind them, it was over. And none of that happened. Um, the Brits, the British tried to push across an inlet. It was quite a skirmish. Trying, you know, there were the Brits trying to uh, affect a a river crossing in daylight under fire <laughs> and it worked out really bad no big deal <laughs> and then of course there was a there was a ship known as the Acteon that was burned to the waterline mm. before it was over with and uh the admiral in charge admiral sir peter parker was in charge he was wounded and over i mean i i don't want to i hate to throw a number out and be wrong but it was it was over three hundred sailors were were killed or wounded in the exchange, and the British had to back off. And Charleston was held, and Charleston became this kind of a Charleston was the the you know third largest port in the United States, it, and it was known as the Paris of the South. Um, it was it's a high nice town. Yeah, I, I ain't gonna yeah. lie, I love Charleston even yeah, today. I still it's, like going there. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> Oh, Chucktown! Chucktown is the place. If you want to eat, if you want to have some, have a couple of beers. Yeah, Charleston place. That's why. Hey, that's why the British wanted to take that rascal. Yeah, you yeah. know it so well. It's Chucktown. Chucktown, man. <laughs> that's it's, when you know you've been that. there a lot. I love that place. Every time I go to Charleston, uh, every time I go to Charleston in like February, and it's like sixty-five and just gorgeous outside, and mm-hmm. I'm always asking myself, why don't I live here? And then it's summer hits, and I go down there in August. And I go, oh, <laughs> Exactly. That place is brutal in the summer. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, so, you know, the British backed off of the South quite a bit and left the South to kind of ruminate on itself. And you had, you had Crown militias and you had Patriot militias um, that were working against each other in the back country, but it was not, it was not, you know, it was more like gang warfare. If that makes any sense. It was it was mm-hmm. kind of it was kind of a little gang warfare. But when the Brits decided to invade, and the British were like, "We're just stalemate up here. Um, we got to break something loose. Let's go down south. Let's rally the loyalist sentiment in the south, and let's secure it. <clears throat> and uh, then we'll uh, you know, the army will move from the from New York." south and the army will move from the south towards uh the north and will crush all resistance in between us that was kind of the overall strategy Mm. um that was what they were thinking and uh so the brits did that and they loaded a shit ton of dudes up on ships and horses and all the all the equipment you can imagine that an army would need uh to sail down the coast and they did. And I mean, logistics in the 18th century is a fascinating thing. I mean, it's like, I'm always, I'm always surprised they got as much done as they did. Um, but one of the things that they ran into, one of the, one of their first and probably one of the biggest problems with the invasion of the South was it was hurricane season. Oops. And, you know, everybody knows, especially down here in North Carolina, that hurricane season is a thing. It's something to be concerned about. Yeah. Might want to they pay attention it. to that. <laughs> We're aware of it every year. Yeah. They knew it. They knew it back then. They did. They knew it back then. They knew it was a deal. Um, they knew it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, that it was a phenomenon that the storms came at this time. They ran right smack into a hurricane. The whole fleet did. And the fleet was scattered across Elegon. I mean, there was a shipload of of Hessian soldiers <laughs> that basically washed up 
uh, and landed in Ireland like a month later because they were so lost. They didn't know where the hell they were. They had no idea. They just like, oh, where are we? This is Ireland. Oh, <laughs> oops. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they landed in they landed in Savannah and they mm. took Savannah fairly easily. I mean, they took it surreptitiously. They didn't they didn't try a Florida salt. They didn't try. They basically landed at Tybee Island. And in y'all are anybody with a ranger tab is probably spent some time on Tybee Island. Tybee. Yep. Yeah. Had a lot of good times in Tybee. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's another podcast. They landed at Tybee yeah. and they were guided through they were guided through the swamps by locals. Um and they basically took Savannah all pretty handily. It wasn't it wasn't like a mat you don't read about massive gunfights or anything like that. Um, but now the Americans knew the deal. Um, now the Americans are like, oh shit. Now Charleston, who's been kind of sitting there, not really doing much. Charleston and, you know, the, the army centered, the, the Southern department is centered in and around Charleston. I was like, well, we got to do something. Benjamin Lincoln was the general in charge at the time. And, uh, so they start marching down the coast. The Americans start marching down the coast. At this time, uh, the Comte de Stang, who was the, the French admiral working around at the time, had showed up to provide and, and lend support. So this is the first time, this is one of the first times that the French actually came in to help. And the French didn't do such a great job at this. Because the French kind of showed up and um, the French kind of showed up and looked down on the Americans, like, "All right, y'all follow me. This is what we're gonna do." And, but that started the ball rolling. That it, the the Battle of Savannah, one of the bloodiest pitch battles um, during the American Revolution. Really, seriously, I mean, the Americans are assaulting forts, assaulting redoubts, and dug in earthworks. Um, the second South Carolina regiment, which is fascinating because, and, and we can get, we're going to, the tie in to the second South Carolina regiment was Marion was a regular army officer. Marion was the, the commander of the second South Carolina. Um, so he was a regular, he's a regular. Oh, I mean, he was not, he was commissioned. He, he was commissioned by the con- Continental Congress, whole nine yards. Um, the general of the South Carolina troops was a guy named William Moultrie, and Moultrie had been the commander of the Second South Carolina. And they're all tied together because in the 1760s during the Cherokee Wars, Marion and Moultrie and all these same guys, the Pinckneys, all these guys that were in the Second South Carolina fixing to charge uh, Spring Hill Redoubt in Savannah were all trying to put down the Cherokee fight in the 1760s. All intimately familiar with one another. So they all knew each other. Yeah, They'd all done this together. They all knew each other. Um, so Marion is a, it's funny because Marion, Marion, when you, when you read his orderly book, you can, you can kind of read into this guy's, this guy wants to be a regular army officer. <laughs> he really does. And he loves the military lifestyle. He loves the discipline. He loves the structure. Um, he tries to, he, he's trying to imbue that into his unit. Um, but when you read his, you read his orderly book, he's a little, there's a little hint of jealousy to the French because he's kind of like, man, I wish I had soldiers like that. Those guys are awesome. They're badass. To the point where him and his officers started mimicking the French. Um, and it's just kind of a little aside, but I always kind of find a little telling. Because um, those of us that have dealt with, you know, foreign country nationals and had to had to work with foreign country nationals, what they end up doing is they start mimicking you. That's right. You look around, all of a sudden, 
they're wearing their gear like you or their uniform is like worn like yours or they're trying to figure out where they can get a uniform like yours because they want to be you. We Yeah, we even saw that in Afghanistan with the Taliban. Constantly. You know? Constantly. Looking, yeah, looking, like, would, looking like Americans when we left out of there, wearing our equipment. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and back in shit, when, when I was there in 2003, um, I was dealing with the AMF before the, the ANA, and all of our AMF guys would, would you know, try to get – where they would try to go find desert uniforms. <laughs> yeah. We were wearing the old deserts back in those days. So Marion was doing the same thing. He was trying to be a – Marion – well, the, old the, European the European fashion military. at the time for the French was all their soldiers had mustaches. Hmm. And then, and this is, this is kind of one of those little weird things, but uh, in, in America, facial hair, beards and mustaches and stuff like that, they were, they were not in fashion. You, you were considered kind of dirty if you had facial hair, like you were unkempt, right? Well, Marion and all his guys started growing mustaches to copy the French, and he writes about it because he writes a friend of his. And he goes, "Oh, you, you you will be impressed with this new set of mustachios that I've grown. Me and my men have worn <laughs> or grown, and all." And you're like, he's trying to copy the French, right? Well, anyway, hey, that's an interesting point too, Bert. Is uh, a lot of guys. What I'm hearing you say, and I've heard you say this before, is he didn't really see. I guess that at at Perhaps you could say this. He didn't see the value of the irregular warfare, you know, role that he had been, uh, the hand he had been given. Perhaps, no, he did not. Perhaps, he's, he's, yeah, he certainly didn't uh, seek it. Yeah, it, it was something that just he was. He was. It, it, it sounds like he was wanting to go the other direction. Yeah, he, he was going to be happier, like you know, on in the the ultimate. The line. Con, yeah, the ultimate conventional officer. Yeah. He what he kind of reminds me of is like when you when you're reading about. Uh, uh, Blackburn and Furtag and, and the guys in the Philippines. Yeah. I'm going way off of way off the track here a little bit. When you read I see about where the, you're going, yeah, that's that's it. The, the dudes that the dudes that get the left behind in the Philippines and and create this massive, you know, this massive network on the island of Mindanao and, and in Luzon and all this all these just massive networks for years created this mm you know, division size element of gorillas. Um, they didn't want to do that either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they don't want to do that either. They're like, shit, I'd, I'd much rather be home right now. or I'd much rather, you know, be in the regular army. This would be a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. yeah so they were just forced into it. And he was kind of forced into it, you know, after the British Island hopping, because you know, the British, the British didn't take the most direct route to Charleston. They knew Charleston was the key to the South. They didn't take the most direct route there. They kind of island hopped all the way up the coast of, of South Carolina uh, until they got to Charleston. They invested Charl what's known as Charleston Neck. And if you, you if you look at the old maps at the time, Charleston is just on a big peninsula where the Ashley and the Cooper River come together. And they... Nice area. Yeah. Well, they, they, they just took and ran an earthwork trench line all the way across that neck. If you've ever been to Charleston, it's about the American line. Uh, I can tell you exactly where the American, the American line is centered in Marion Square in Charleston, downtown. It's where the old Citadel is. Um, the old Citadel is, was about the center of the American line, and the Brits were about 250 yards to the north of that. <laughs> and it, then it just devolved into siege warfare. Um, somewhere in the middle of all that, Marion is injured, wounded, broke his ankle. Um, there's a, the legend is Marion was a teetotaler. That's pretty well documented. He didn't drink because he would talk about how he would drink the Roman drink. He would drink vinegar and water. Mm. And you got to remember that our, uh, our forefathers drank constantly and it wasn't because it wasn't because they were a bunch of lushes. It's just water would kill you back then, mm. especially in South Carolina. So you added rum or you added whiskey or you added port or you added some wine to your water to kill what was ever sleeping in or, you know, swimming around in the water before you drank it. Well, Marion, he didn't really, Marion uh, used vinegar because he didn't like alcohol. 
Um, but supposedly the 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 uh, rumor or the the legend of the time was is there was a party in Charleston, and I can't imagine there being a big freaking shindig in Charleston in the middle of a siege. But there was a party in Charleston. This is the legend, and um, the the host of the party decided that I'm going to lock all the doors until all the booze is gone. So everybody drink up. Well, Marion was like, no, I'm not doing that. So he jumped out of the second floor window to get away from the party and broke his ankle. Mm. That's the legend. Don't know if it's true or not. I, you know, everybody's there's, there's so much crazy information that you can't trust about Marion. It feels true though. It, it feels yeah. true. That, it that, that, brief swell. That, it's that a brief swell. Hey, listen, it's a cool story. <laughs> yeah. It brief swell. Anyway, we do know he broke his ankle, and uh, General Lincoln and General Moultrie basically agreed that, all right, Charleston's fixing to fall because the city fathers of Charleston was like, we're done. The British are going to come burn the entire city down. You got to give up. So there was a lot of political intrigue going on. Um, about who was going to give up and when they're going to give up. And uh, Governor Rutledge basically would talk to everybody into let's not have the city burned down, surrender. Mm. Well, before that, um, Marion and wounded officers, from what I, the, the way I remember it, wounded officers were whisked out of the city. How they got out of the city, I don't know. But there's a lot of ways you can get out of Charleston. Because it's just a, it's a, just a labyrinth of creeks and rivers and everything else. You could, you could get away from Charleston back then. Um, so he managed to get away, and you don't hear about him for almost six months. You hear nothing about him. Um, it's almost six months or so, and he's out there healing up or wherever he was. He might have been. I mean, yeah. His plantation, his plantation wasn't that far down the road. Um, so he, yeah, isn't it? Uh, sorry to interrupt you, Bert, but uh, isn't his? I've heard that his plantation is like uh, submerged, and like, uh, and like uh, most, a lot of his plantation is under Lake Marion. Yeah, and it's so because I remember going to map once and trying to find this, and and uh, I just yeah, it's true to form. It's Lake Marion. Yeah, it's, it's like. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a pretty large, I mean, there's a large battlefield. One of the, well, actually, percentage-wise, the bloodiest battle of the American Revolution is under Lake Santee. Mm. A lot of people don't realize that. That's because it was only a month before Yorktown. It's called Utah Springs. Right. Rain was in the middle of that one, too. But anyway... So Marion re he reappears and he starts collecting collecting fighters. Um, he starts collecting people that are still in the fight. Um, he reappears while this all goes on. Of course, the American Army surrenders. When the American Army surrenders, it, I mean this is this is one of those that just makes you go wow. The largest surrender of American forces until the fall of the Philippines. Wow. Yeah. See, I didn't know that. There's like uh, something like four or five thousand, right? It's close, yeah, like five five thousand. Yeah. Five thousand troops. Yeah, you hurt. know, except for the ones that except for the ones that managed to get away. And there were reinforcements that were trying to get down there to help relieve Charleston. Buford is a great example. Um, there was a Virginia regiment that was marching down to help to go to Charleston to help. And Charleston fell, and these guys were just south of Charleston. Oh, I'm sorry, just south of Charlotte uh, in a place called the Waxhaws. Not that far away, really, from from some of the, some of the stomping grounds that we played with. Right. Not that far away at all. A little to the, little to the west of where we're at in the Waxhaws. And Charlton, my boy, <laughs> mm-hmm. Bannister Charlton. Everybody, he, he makes a great bad guy, but. I'd work for him. He's he does. He does make a good bad guy. He makes a great bad guy, but he's, yeah, he's yeah, I saw a, I saw the movie. He got I, a bad rap too. I saw the movie. I know that's. Oh my god! Stop. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the movie's not true. The, which movie you're uh, talking about? You're talking about the Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, Patriot. Patriot. Yeah, how accurate that was. Oh, hey. this is good theater. Yeah. There's two things. There's two things in the Patriot. 
there's two things in the Patriot that are absolutely true. I mean, and, and I'll stake, I'll stake anything on it. And the first one was there was a state called South Carolina. And the second one was there was an American revolution. Other than that, <laughs> contrived. Other than that, that was the only two things that are accurate. I've heard yeah. that before. Other than that, it was all artistic license. Pretty horrible. Now we've had horrible, and believe it or not, I actually worked on it. Yeah, we've I, had I, Pat on here before, and well, he, you know, of course, he did the part one, but uh, yeah, he he uh, he did not sing the guy's praises. He's, I think, he said the director said it's not my vision. I have yeah, another vision, is. and uh, you know that, and like, well, your vision is you know uh, made up. Yeah. yeah, when he started, when he started, when he started portraying the Brits as you know, yeah, some stand in for the SS, putting people in churches and burning <laughs> them down. This is not France in 1940. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, and that's of course that's a whole different different topic. But besides being a ranger, of course, Bert, you know, you work pretty extensively within the uh, the film industry, so that's got to be tough when you're a, a historian sometimes. <laughs> you know, being, yeah, being I, knowing I what to- knowing what actually took place, and then you know being involved in theater. Yeah. It's, it's, I've had the argument with a lot of producers and directors before of, if you just tell the story, the story is that unbelievable. Exactly. Yeah. The story's yeah. good. The story's even yeah. better. Yeah. The yeah. story, the story's is, is that unbelievable. If, if you can, uh, so it, yeah, it's difficult. Um, I've been doing it enough years now where I look at it and I go, if I get, if I can get 70%, <laughs> It's a good day, you know. Anything, anything over seventy percent, I'm having a great day. <laughs> so it can get really frustrating. But, uh, but yeah. So Marion reappears, though he he shows back up on the scene, like ding. And uh, of course, after the remnants of the Southern Army, and there ain't that many, really. A couple of thousand of the remnants of the Southern Army. Um, they end up. In uh, in and around, up around, I want to say Hillsborough, North Carolina. Uh, they end up they end up in the upstate, and they uh, so, but they they're leaderless. Lincoln's been Lincoln's been uh, captured. Yeah, the general Lincoln, that uh, surrendered in Charleston. Yeah, the general that surrendered it. And, uh, and, which is and would you say fascinating little tidbit about that is. When Lincoln surrendered, um, Lincoln surrendered. He was not afforded the honors of giving up his sword, or mm. yeah, he wasn't afforded the the proper honors because the British didn't consider the Americans as real soldiers. If you ever look at the the correspondence of I want to say it's Burgoyne or Clinton, they never referred to Washington as General Washington. They referred to him as Mister Washington. Uh. They never afforded them. They never afforded the Americans. They're not real soldiers. I was stuck up. These, these are our, <laughs> these are these are just rebellious subjects. They're not yeah. soldiers, right? Well, I was going to ask. Well, I was going to ask you too. I mean, uh, was there a different sort of makeup and belief uh, when you're talking about the upcountry as as a as opposed to the low country? I mean, ooh. as far as the sentiment, is there a it's reason almost, why they were? Is there a reason why they were in the upcountry? Well, they were they were getting away from Charleston was a big one. I mean, think you, about is it. There, is there more recruits up there? Is there more uh, more patriots? Uh, food, food. You know, they they could because this army's living off the land. They got nobody supplying them. They're having to live off the land, so they're going. They're trying to go where the food is. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, uh, you know, up in uh, so Lincoln, uh, Lincoln was not afforded the honors of surrendering his army. Lincoln becomes paroled, and later on, when Lincoln is at uh, Yorktown, because Lincoln gets back, he's back. Uh, Lincoln's at Yorktown. When Cornwallis refused to come out of, to even attend the surrender ceremony, saying that he was sick. I can't be there. I'm sick. Uh, The officer that was to present the sword of surrender to Washington, he first tried to present it to the French. The French said, nope, it's Washington. Washington said, I'm not accepting shit from you, and because because Cornwallis isn't here, and he sent Lincoln out there, and it was kind of a slap in the face. <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of a it was one of those really Washington kind of 
Yeah. Smacks. It's a Washingtonian you know? little slap in the face. That's just awesome. Got a little smack there, buddy. Anyway, so <laughs> the other thing that Washington had going on is Washington's dealing with a bunch of internal politics, um, huge issues. Washington was a great strategic thinker. He was an amazing leader. He was an amazing logistician. Um, his just the, the the sheer volume of correspondence that came out of his his headquarters is phenomenal. Um, wasn't the greatest tactician. I mean, tactically, he's the, he was all right. Um, and they had just had a problem at Brandywine, right? And basically the American army had been defeated at Brandywine and he was, he was having issues, but the guy that had no issues was a guy named Horatio Gates mm-hmm. and Gates Gates was this, he was an ex British officer and Gates had just taken the credit for the battle of Saratoga where he destroyed the, the British army in Saratoga. I mean, it's arguable. Yeah. Yeah. Arguably, it's some bragging rights. Credit yeah. should have gone to Benedict Arnold. <laughs> right now, that's. Uh, I mean, that that really chafed Benedict Arnold's balls. Was uh, probably yeah. the beginning of Arnold flipping. Yeah. yeah, it was probably one of the big. It was probably the first step to him saying, "I am done." It was made of Benedict Arnold from that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Gates. Gates has also got a lot of friends in Congress. Yeah. Congress, Congress is looking at Washington going, is this the right guy? Mm. And there's a lot of, there was talk of replacing Washington with Gates. Mm. There was, there was talk of, yeah, we're just going to get rid of him. We'll put, we'll put Gates in charge because he won. I mean, from a civilian standpoint, that guy won. You, you've been having issues. Yeah. So Washington the Southern Army collapses. The Southern Army gets mostly captured. The South is rocked back. Um, Washington perceives that the center of mass is now shifted to a huge degree. The center of mass is now shifted to the South mm. of the conflict of the entire war. Um, and he goes, huh, I tell you what, I'm going to send the hero of Saratoga, General Gates, down to the South, and he'll fix it. Well, what he did was he kind of went sink or swim, buddy. What he yeah. did was he got Gates out of his hair. He got yeah. Gates out of the freaking picture. Yeah. Get him the hell away from the main army. Get him away from Congress. Because thinking about it, South Carolina and Philadelphia might as well have been on the other side of the planet. Because South Carolina and North Carolina at that time was a wilderness. It was not nearly as grown up as it is now. Um, when you got to the fall line, or when I refer to the fall line, when the when the rivers became unnavigable, and here we are, you know, I, I'm outside of uh, Lillington, North Carolina, right now, and just down the road is the fall line for the Cape Fear. Well, the fall line means that's where that's where the boats can't go any farther. And back then, the rivers were the interstates, the rivers were the highways, so. You know, when you got to the fall line in North and South Carolina, it was known as the back country. Because at that point, you had to walk a ride. And it wasn't many roads. Mm. And the interesting thing is, if you look at battle maps of the big pitch battles in the American Revolution, every one of those battles has the road going right through the middle of it. Because mm. they're fighting on the road. Right. They're fighting on the road, just not using IEDs. They're fight on the road every time. Um, but yeah, they so he sends Gates down, then Marion reappears. Bing, that's the third time I said that. Marion reappears, he shows up, and it's a I love, I love the the actual uh quote, which I had it in front of me right now. (laughs) Well, the actual quote, there was a there was a major John Eager Howard. And John Eager Howard was one of the majors of the 1st Maryland Regiment that had been in Charleston. A lot of them had escaped. A lot of them had been captured. And John Eager Howard uh, writes in his diary that a Mr. Marion arrived in camp today Mm. with 50 men and boys 
half black, half white, and very burlesque in appearance. Burlesque. All wearing small leathery caps. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's awesome. In France, what the hell? It, it, you know, you you read the you read the accounts of the American Revolution, and when they describe themselves, or they describe somebody else, the language is so flowery. Because somebody will, you'll read something about my soldiers are entirely naked. I need supplies. My soldiers are entirely naked. Well, one, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of blowing it out of proportion a little bit. But two, if you had a pair of pants and a shirt, you weren't dressed. Hmm. You know, you needed a coat. You needed a vest. You needed, you know, shoes. You needed all that. And if they just had a pair of pants and a shirt, they were entirely naked. But burlesque in appearance, I read that to be that they were dressed in whatever they had. Yeah. You know, they, about, yeah. But they were all wearing Lovely. small leather and caps. Yeah. You know, the interesting piece about that is we know that the 2nd South Carolina Regiment, uh, the guys that I talked about that had fought in Savannah and lost 50% of their numbers in Savannah, all wear, wore leather helmets that look like light infantry helmets, not the tricorn hats mm. that you, that everybody likes to associate with, you know, the 18th century or the American revolution time. Um, they wore these small leather caps. So imagine, imagine a ball cap with a bill turned all the way up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the crescent that's on the South Carolina state flag, that crescent moon that's on the corner of the South Carolina state flag was right in the center of that, flap that's turned up and it had liberty engraved on it in silver nice. so uh, that was the helmet of the second south carolina regiment so all these guys are showing up with these you know parts of second south carolina uniforms so they were guys that he had met there were guys from his unit that he that had escaped from charleston and he managed to round them together the other fascinating piece and this was this is another part of the quote. It was with great effort that we had to prevent the other soldiers from jeering at them. And we had to separate them because they were half black and half white. Because hmm. he had he had African-American soldiers with him. And that was something that was something that soldiers from Maryland or soldiers from up north in Delaware, because the Delaware units were down here, too. They'd never seen that. We're not accustomed to that. Yeah. And they were like, what the hell is that? And everybody in South Carolina, everybody in South Carolina was like, what? It wasn't strange for anybody in South Carolina, which, which also tells me that the pervasive, I guess, racial attitudes were vastly different down here than they were up north, Jeez. especially in that time period, vastly different. Yeah, there's anyway, nothing. There's, yeah, there's and, nothing new about that. Alexis Tocqueville even even uh, noticed yeah. that when he was writing his book. But he he shows up and Gates meets him, and Gates is not impressed. Gates is kind of licking his nose down there. <laughs> and Gates is like, "All right, well, I appreciate you being here, but I tell you what, uh, I tell you what, I need you to do." And this is when his freaking. This is when his. UW life starts because hmm. Gates thinking, he goes, I need you to go and to these two rivers. He points out the rivers on the PD and he points out the rivers on the broad river and stuff. And he goes, I need you to burn all the boats, hmm. get rid of all the enemy's ways of being able to cross rivers. Can you do that for me? And Marion was like, yeah, but I'm here to fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you'll be better if you do this for me. So Marion freaking rolls out. He's like, this is bullshit. He goes and does his mission. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the middle of all that, Gates or the, the he British. He wants to be a regular guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah, he wants to be a regular. Yeah, come on. He's like, I'm here to fight, dude. I got my guys. Yeah. Come on. I, I brought a company, you know, 50 guys. That's about a company in the 18th century. Yeah. You know, That's and they're damage. all. And, and in veterans. my opinion, there's no way of there's no way of verifying this. But in my opinion, just based on the fact that they're wearing headgear from what had been a South Carolina line unit, they were all trained. Mm. They were all guys that he had managed to scrape together from the dudes that he lost in Charleston. Yeah, they'd been they'd seen action. They'd, mm. they'd say, you know, he had some guys that had fought in Savannah with him. 
So these dudes, they go, they leave, they go to do their thing. Um, meanwhile, the Brits have started to, to move out of Charleston and the Cornwallis's idea was, it's very familiar. If you look at it, you look at it and you go, Jesus Christ. He almost creates a strategic Hamlet kind of Vietnam kind of scenario because he starts moving out. Of course, Charleston, big supply base. Navy comes in there, drops off stuff. We got supplies in there for days. Then he starts moving into the interior and he stops at a little place that's right outside of uh, Santee. Uh, that we could talk about later too. It's called the, and they stationed a Captain Watson there, mm. and they call it Fort Watson. Fort Fort Watson. Wa- it's still there. Fort Watson is still there. It's not a fort, but what it was was an Indian mound. Mm. I think it's a, like a Mississippian era Indian mound, and the Brits put a basically put a little cop on the top of this Indian mound, and it was to help secure lines of communication. When they get up to this place called Camden, South Carolina, and Camden is about the fall line. Camden, Camden is about the fall line for the rivers. Back before the American Revolution, it was a little, they called it Big Pine Tree. It was just this little, you know, kind of just a store on the side of the road. Yeah, there's not, Imagine, much, of, not much there today either. Yeah, pretty. I mean, we've all been to places like that. It's it's like a Dollar General with a post office, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? But but now it's like uh, now it's like freaking. You know, it, it's it's got a little off to it. There's a little bit of a town there. Um, the Kershaws have a big plantation there, hmm. um, and Cornwallis establishes a fob. And I liken that fob to being kind of like if if Charleston's like Bagram or Kia or Ikea in mm. Afghanistan, then Camden's more like Canar. Mm. Not quite as big, still big, but not quite as big, right? And he's slowly moving into the interior. As he moves into the interior, he, uh, you know, that's when Gates shows up, reestablishes the army. And instead of going through a period of, okay, what do we need to do right now? Because y'all just got the snot kicked out of you. Hmm. What do we need to do? And these guys are hungry. These guys are tired. These guys, you know, they just went through pretty brutal defeat. Gates is like, all right, boys, we're going back down there and we're going to get some. These guys ain't ready to do that. They're not ready to do that at all. And they're still hungry. So Gates starts marching back to Camden. When he when he's marching back to Camden, the worst thing to happen, especially in the American Revolution, that happens is Cornwallis gets word of it. Cornwallis finds out, oh, he's coming. So he starts moving out to meet him. And they meet about, I don't know, eight, nine miles outside of Camden at night in a meeting engagement. Pretty bad. Well, all the way down there, because it's August, it's hot all the way down there. The boys are trying to figure out what to eat because they're hungry. And they end up they end up eating green apples and molasses. Nice combo. So let's go ahead and imagine <laughs> what that army smelled August like. What, yeah. Oh, Woo-hoo. my God. Dude. It was bad. It was yeah, bad. South Carolina in August, and you've got some intestinal issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and and you make contact at about three o'clock in the morning. Mm. The battle was amazingly one-sided. Um, I could go into how the battle was set up and everything else, but does suffice to say, it was profoundly one-sided. And Gates ends up not even making it through halfway through the battle before he says it's over. Run away. He didn't even say retreat. Every man for yourself, kind of run away. I think he led the way. He? And he got on his horse <laughs> and rode. He rode like seventy-eight miles and one and one nice. sitting on his horse. One, that's a badass horse. Two, yeah, I don't think I could do seventy-eight miles on a horse at one sitting. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, that take me. But he ran away. Now Gates is disgraced. Gates gets fired. Congress yeah. goes, well, that was screwed up. Meanwhile, Marion is down in, you know, burning boats. Mm. He gets word about it. 
And he goes, well, my last orders were to create all kinds of chaos. I'm going to yeah. start creating. So what you start seeing, what you start seeing is Marion starts messing around. He goes home. He basically goes home. Uh, he grew up in a little town called Georgetown, South Carolina, which I'm intimately familiar with. My parents lived in Georgetown for 20 years, almost 30 years. Another coastal he goes down town. to Georgetown. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, another coastal town. Yeah, yeah. Kind of right like another, yeah, like a Charleston, like a Charlestown wannabe. Is yeah, it didn't yeah. have it didn't have the harbor that Charleston has. Doesn't have yeah. the deep water ports. But Georgetown was basically where all all the people that like had money, they had houses and plantations in Georgetown, but they lived in Charleston. Georgetown, I'll give you another example. Rice, rice in South Carolina was the king crop. It wasn't cotton. That didn't come till later. Cotton was a cotton was like an 1840s kind of thing. But in South Carolina, the king crop in South Carolina was rice, and they called it. It was it was notably called Carolina Gold. There was more millionaires in South Carolina per capita than any other place in the world until 1859, <laughs> because South Carolina was that rich. So it was like Dubai. It was ridiculous. They they made they planted and grew so much rice there. They exported rice to China. Wow. Think about that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It's really fascinating because if you look at a topographical map of of the Georgetown area now, you can still see all the rice paddies. Wow. They're still on the maps. All the rice paddies are there because there was another industry that shipped in (laughs) in the early 1700s. There was industry to, to ship in red clay from the upstate of South Carolina to Georgetown to build the rice dikes, mm. or build the, basically the rice paddy dikes, and they built it out of red clay, so they're still there. How many hurricanes have hit that world, that part of the world, and they've never washed away? Right. <laughs> you know, I've been there. I've been walking up and down the rice dikes. Um, yeah, it's a big damn alligators. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah, mm. they're they're all still there, but yeah, Carolina Gold rice was the thing. My apologies to uh, uh, my history teacher, uh, Mr. Harris, uh, in Charleston. He'd be so, ashamed of you right he, now. Yeah, somehow I've, I that slipped. <laughs> that's why we bring. That's why we bring Bird on here, man. He freaking gets us gets us straight again. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, you, I mean, I, you could go back to. I mean, I'm, 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 I could go off off target here for a second, but one of my. One of my wayward adventures was uh, doing a security contract in Sierra Leone, Africa. And one of the things that I discovered in Sierra Leone, I uh, was talking to my to my driver. And uh, he was, he asked me where I was from. And I said, South Carolina. And he was like, wow, yeah, South Carolina. That's where a lot of our captives ended up. That was his words, not mine. And wow. I kind of looked at it and was like, that's an interesting way to put it. Captives. Okay. Yeah. But the interesting thing about Sierra Leone is Sierra Leone is a rice growing nation. That's what they grow there. Mm. They grow rice, they mine bauxite and diamonds. Mm. <laughs> that's that that's pretty much Sierra Leone's economy in a nutshell. They could be rich as hell, but they're not. Mm. Um anyway, back to so Washington, now that this now the Battle of Camden happens, Washington sends down the savior of the South, in my opinion. He was a Quaker. He was a freaking Quaker. Mm. And he he put away his, <laughs> and a logistician. Yeah. He put away his beliefs. He was like, nope, I'm gonna go fight. Now think about that for a minute. That's ooh, I'm gonna take everything, every belief system that I was ever raised with, mm. one of the most peace-loving religions or ideologies, Christian ideologies there is, and he put it aside, became an American Revolutionary War general. Mm. Um Nathaniel Green, what an amazing man. He was, uh, in my opinion, he was a genius. Nathaniel Green had been Washington's G4. That's right. He was Washington's freaking logistics master. He supplied the army through, he managed to keep the army alive and fed through uh, Valley Forge, Morristown, some of the worst times in the American army's history. He looks at Green and says, go take care of it. 
Green shows up down south, looks at what he has, realizes that there's a huge opportunity. And all of a sudden, the militia, the militia are starting to show up. The militia are starting to show up. Hmm. And, he's, and he's trying to figure out, all right, how do I harness this militia? Marion's still, Marion's now attacking targets of opportunity. There was a little, there was this little fight. The Brits had captured a bunch of, a bunch of soldiers in a, at Cal, at Camden, right? At the Battle of Camden, there was a, there was a, a large number of soldiers captured from the 1st Maryland Regiment. Kind of a fascinating little aside, but he intercepted them being escorted to Charleston to be put on a prison ship in a place called Black Mingo Swamp. I've been right there. It's not a nice place. It's a nasty little piece of ground. Mm. Um, it's like dri- when you drive down 95 between Florence and south of the border and you look to the left and the right, that's what it looks like. <laughs> it's a nasty little piece of ground. And he ends up intercepting uh, a guy by the name of Colonel Ball, who is and his British guys that were escorting these prisoners back to Charleston, and he attacks them. He frees all of them. This is where it gets kind of weird. He frees all of them, doubles his numbers. Mm. <laughs> all of a sudden, they're like, hell yeah. But the other half of them were like, no, I'm done. And they marched themselves to Charleston. Mm. They're like, like, I'm done fighting. I'm out. Yeah, we're just they... going to Chucktown. Yeah, we'll some... take our chance. Something that uh, you were hitting on too, uh, uh, Bert, is uh, you know when you had that initial uh, foray of Green when he was looking at those uh, those leaders, you know the the, uh, the militia leaders. You know, you're talking about uh, some of those are like Pickens, Sumter. It, it wasn't he the guy that kind of saw these disparate bands and was able to kind of uh, bring them in. The, yeah touched on Sumter so much. I love Sumter. I, I mean, you know O'Kelly. Y'all know O'Kelly pretty well now. I think O'Kelly is the living embodiment of Sumter. <laughs> reincarnated. Is Sumter reincarnated. It truly is. Sumter was a guy that I fondly refer as a... I just He's a land pirate. Hmm. I mean, he drew more dudes to him guys flocked to him one he was a great he was a good leader i mean he could talk he could talk a raccoon out of a tree he was a good leader the other thing is he paid his troops through loot Mm. right and that is a slippery slope when you're dealing with (laughs) when you're dealing with uh a bunch of local pirates yeah yeah (laughs) That is a slippery slope, and he make, paid make, his guy. Makes you popular, though. Over. Yeah, if you're fighting for him, it makes you popular. Yeah, but it's pretty mercenary. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, Sumter always had a ton of dudes. He always had a bunch of guys wanting to work for him. Marion, Marion had anywhere from as low as 15 to as high as maybe 100. Because mm. Marion didn't play that game. Marion did not play that game. Yeah. Um, from what I've uh, read, also Marin was probably the closest to uh, Mao. I know, uh, and I'm sure you guys are aware that Mao, uh, one of his claims of fame uh, when he was fighting, uh, you know, in the Chinese Civil War, was to have his guys restrained and not to loot, and that exactly. way because they they wanted to maintain that you know, hey, we're we're of you, we're of the people, and to exactly. not alienate the people. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a big uh, distinction that you're making there. When you when you when you really when you really look at Marion too, he was remember he wanted to be a regular army officer. Yeah, and he would he would try to instill the same sense of discipline within his band of guerrillas um, that he would in the regular army. He was never successful at that, of course. I mean, they'd be like, man, you know, he would always he'd always complain that. He would start out on a march, and he'd have a hundred dudes. And by the time he got to the objective, it'd be like twenty left. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oop, I'm leaving, I'm out. You know, um, 
but he was he was terminally un- undersupplied. He, I mean, these guys would go into a fight sometimes with like five bullets, five cartridges. You know, they would sometimes yeah. go into fight. You know, <laughs> get it on, buddy. Let's do this. Um, it's like going with half a one man. of the things that they oh. really had a lot of. And, and again, remember I said South Carolina was the, one of the richest colonies and became one of the richest states in the Union up until 1859, 1860. Um, but what we what one of the most popular pastimes in this part of the world was horse racing. Mm, that's right, horse racing. I can show you. I can I can pull up some some really cool. Uh, like advertisements in the Charleston Mercury and stuff like that, where guys are like, Hey, I got a thoroughbred standing at stud. You fucking won this race and blah, blah. These guys are breeding some amazing horses. Hmm. Now I don't necessarily, you know, they, they used what they had in, in a lot of cases, but I think it's pretty well documented. I, I can pretty much document or, or pretty much they were better mounted and better ridden than the Brits by a long shot. Um, there's one Here's of the legends in South Carolina, and there's actually a there's actually a breeding program for horses in South Carolina now, and the horse breed is known as the Marsh Tacky, hmm. and they're these little hardy little you know horses that live in the swamps of South Carolina and stuff like that, and they're like yeah, those are the horses that Marion rode. I disagree with that. I think those are the horses that Marion rode when you have anything else. Because I'm pretty sure that Marion was riding some Draxers, boy. Because what happens? <laughs> the cavalry with the main army under Gates, or I'm I'm sorry, I apologize, under Green, mm. are sucking for horses. So what does Green do? Green writes a letter down to Marion. and says, hey, dude, I'm going to have to get you to send me about, you know, half your horses. Because the cavalry's sucking. Marion didn't even answer him. Marion sent him his resignation. Marion yeah, said, you do done. that, I quit. Yeah, he's done. I'm done. <laughs> he's got no, no mobility. You, do this, you yeah. do this and you just effectively, totally, you basically took all my power me. away. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. And Green wrote him back and was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's talk about this. And totally backpedaled and didn't, didn't take any of the horses. Mm. So, I mean, that was one of the things that, that they had. Now, so Marion is tearing up the low country of South Carolina. It's fascinating to read some of the British accounts of Marion because you'll see, you know, Marion attacked a wagon train on the King's Highway between Georgetown and Charleston. And then the next day, you'll see Marion attacked an outpost in Orangeburg. That's 100 miles away. It's over 100 miles away. So is it possible? I guess. I mean, I've heard of people being able to ride. Like if you had a couple of horses and you were trading horses out. Express. I mean, if you were trading horses out, you could do that and still fight at the end of the day, maybe. But what I think was happening was the Brits, it became such a huge I.O. thing mm. that the Brits equated any act of banditry or any act of, of guerrilla unconventional warfare to Marion mm. or to Sumter or to Pickens. Mostly it was regionally. It was Marion. <laughs> it was Marion. Um, and it's a funny thing, too, is Marion and Sumter, they didn't like each other. Marion didn't like the way Sumter operated, and Sumter thought Marion was like, like, I guess, too freaking careful about how he did things. Yeah. So they didn't really like each other either. So this brings us up to uh, in the chronology, uh, we're like, uh, let's see, 1780s. Oh, getting into 1780. Yeah. Yeah, 1780. So and I know we have. I mean, we're like one hour and four. And I think, <laughs> hey, maybe we could do like a part, a part three. three. Yeah, because there's, 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 there's just a lot to there's there a lot to cover so down here. Yeah, there's so I much. Mean, I tell you what, I tell you what would be funny is is uh, get me and O'Kelly at the same time. Well, I think we yeah. might. I think we might plan on doing that for part three. Yeah, just a banter. Get me and O'Kelly at the same time because he and I'll yeah. just start 
tap hey, off of each other. Paul, Paul and I just drink coffee and just listen to you guys. Hey, the, uh, the interesting thing, Bert, there's so many interesting things you brought out is, but one of them is uh, you nuanced things and brought out things that he didn't. And then, you know, that's, that's then, what's fun about it. Yeah. And then, of course, you guys kind of highlighted the same big uh, milestones. Uh, but, you know, just to kind of try to cap some of this, uh, you know, Mara was a guy that, I mean, as you said, uh, you know, he didn't really want to be in a regular fighter. And he kind yeah, of he fell into this position, but, you know, he did a hell of a job. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, he, he managed to hold it together. Yeah. Um, there's, and there's, how he uh, did it was so important. Yeah, he managed yeah. to hold it together, and he managed to maintain a modicum of discipline with his yeah. men that by the end of the war, nobody was coming after Marion for restitution, if, yeah. that makes, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, that restraint of his guys was, was crucial. And the, cause yeah, as you have it, said, or I think maybe it was Pat that said it, this was essentially down here a civil war. It was. Yeah, it was very, uh, it was very gnarly. <laughs> it was go, a lot use of eighty cents of the word. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of religious tones to that yeah. civil war. Well, Presbyterian versus Anglican. Yeah. Uh, kind of, kind of thing going on. There's a. And I'd recommend this to both of y'all. Y'all would, y'all would get a kick out of it. But it's a, it's a diary of Reverend Reverend Woodmason. Yeah, I've heard you say that. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing about it's an Anglican minister that basically gets sent to the sent to the colonies. He lands at Charleston and he gets sent up here. He's in this area, uh, upstate South Carolina, lower North Carolina, as a circuit minister. And his descriptions of the locals are just off the charts hilarious. And some of them are fascinating. I mean, he goes into a church and in his diary, it says, I can't make this up. I married five rogues and whores and baptized their children today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy just... was not impressed with his lot in life. He's like, this wow. sucks. I can't believe I'm here. I got to follow the word of God, though. This is awesome. And somehow, <laughs> I'm doing a good uh, word. Somehow, Mary was going to keep this all together and then kind of keep his guys. Uh, you know, from, you know, keep it from getting spiraling out of control. But hey, uh, hey, sorry, Major, appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, looking forward to that uh, that third iteration. We bring in you and Pat together. Part kind three. Of, uh, yeah, kind of weave this thing into a part three. But yeah, uh, no, that'll be that'll be fun. That'll yeah, be well, that'll be fun. I mean, you get the two of us in the same place at the same time. We start playing off each other. Oh, yeah. We, we could, you don't know what kind of rabbit holes we end up falling down. <laughs> Y'all are well aware of that, of that at this point. <laughs> yeah, but f- fantastic. Hey, thanks for being on today's podcast, sir. Thank you. Right, guys, I appreciate it. Y'all have a good one. Thanks. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander Podcast. And if you enjoy our content and unique perspective, we hope you'll check out our sponsors, blacksmithpublishing.com, Warriors Publisher. Okay, we, we write books for warriors, and they're written by warriors. Lots of great stuff there, blacksmithpublishing.com. Looking for some cool stuff to put on your uh, put on your body and walk around? Check out the general store, Pinelander Apparel, uh, at the uh, pinelander1776.com. You can get uh, there also from the blacksmithpublishing.com uh, website. Until our next meeting, remember to keep your head on the swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. Glory be to Pineland. Glory be the resistance.